0: Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We pray that you would plant it deep within our hearts and that you would cause it to grow forth and that you would ever transform us more and more into the image of your Son Jesus. And so may your word this day cause that to happen in us, and we would always go forth from here rejoicing in the knowledge that you are at work in us because you have said so, because you have promised to do so. So grant to us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts to receive your grace this day. All of this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We all have had startling moments in our lives, or maybe moments where everything was changed for us. I can think of many in my own life. You might call them hinge moments, you know, like the hinge of a door where everything turns. Moments that happen in such a way that nothing afterwards is quite the same. Maybe it was your baptism. Maybe it was your confirmation. Maybe it was your first outward profession of faith. Or maybe it was returning to your faith after a time of abandonment. Maybe it was graduation from college or from high school. Maybe it was your wedding day when you said, I do. Or the birth of your children. Any and all of these moments are hinges in our lives where everything changes. Everything that follows after any of those moments has a different flavor to it, a different sense to it. Nothing is the same after that. Everything has changed. You know that you can't go back anymore. You can't go back to where you once were because... To do so would drain that moment of everything. It would drain it of its true import for you. Because it's a moment that can't be undone, truly. No matter what you do. You've been changed in the midst of it. And you know that nothing stays the same. I wonder if that's how St. Peter felt. How the other apostles felt in this moment. If they realized the true import or if it is only on reflection that they realize the importance of the words that they were saying in this moment. When I was in seminary, my professors always talk about this being a hinge moment in the Gospels. That here, everything changes in how the Gospels are being approached, every writer shifts gears. Everything prior to this moment has been completely focused on Jesus teaching the crowds, on Him healing anyone who comes to Him on all this ministry going outward toward all the people. But now, at this moment, what we heard in the gospel today, everything changes for Jesus and the disciples. Here, after Jesus makes his confession, Jesus will begin directly teaching the disciples about his coming death and resurrection. He turns his face toward Jerusalem and begins traveling that way knowing what is coming for him, knowing that he is going to his last Passover. And on the way, he is constantly telling his disciples that he will go there and he will be persecuted and he will die, but in three days, he will be raised back to life. His ministry changes in this moment when the disciples finally grasp who it is they're dealing with. The disciples, of course, are left dumbfounded by these things that Jesus begins teaching them. But they keep following nonetheless. They're confused, but they won't walk away from Him now. They have, through Peter, confessed something that can't be undone. It makes me think of when Jesus said that He would go to Mary and Martha after Lazarus' death. And St. Thomas says, let us go that we may die with Him also. It's a moment that you can't walk away from. And here in the midst of the hinge moment, we see Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus' response tells us that all who confess with Peter will be the ones who overcome the work of the death, the work of the devil, and the work of death, and that they will bring forgiveness of sins to others through faith. That those who confess with Peter will be the ones who overcome death and the devil, and they will bring forgiveness of their sins through faith, and they will bring it to others, that forgiveness. And so first we have those who confess with Peter. What does Peter say in this moment? Well, first, they're on their way traveling still. Now, they've been traveling around the Decapolis and they've come back around the Sea of Galilee and now they've gone up to Caesarea Philippi. This is very, very far north. In Israel, it was the northernmost point during the kingdoms. And what's so interesting I found was that in Caesarea Philippi, it's where... Jeroboam, the wicked king of the northern kingdom, the first king of the northern kingdom after the split, this is where he placed one of his golden calves. was there in this area of Caesarea Philippi. There is where he called God's people to come and worship false gods. He called God's people away from Jerusalem because he was fearful that they would go back to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh when the kingdom split. And so he built a golden calf and had them go and worship it. So I find it interesting that here at this moment, Jesus is walking around in this region and he looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that the son of man is? I love how Jesus shapes this question. He doesn't say, who do people say that I am? But he he does it very obliquely like he does so often. He talks about himself in the third person saying, who do people say that the son of man is? And his disciples answer, some say John. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I found it interesting that none of these individuals that are named were kings or warriors for God. So often the Son of Man and Messiah are wrapped up with that idea of kingship. But here, the disciples are speaking of people who are thinking of Him as the great prophet that was to come. For after all, the Son of Man and the Messiah had many many pictures in the Old Testament. Sometimes He is pictured as the king. He is considered the son of David. The one who will take up David's throne and sit upon it for eternity. That is one picture of the Messiah. But then there's also the picture of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah, in the last half of it, who is the suffering servant, who suffers for the sins of God's people, who takes those sins upon himself and dies for them. But then there's also a picture of the Messiah being the great prophet who will arise in a way like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, There will be another prophet like me who will come one day, who will do greater things than me. So much so are these pictures so disparate that you have a kingly picture, a prophetic picture, and a suffering servant. Now, some Jews in that day thought there were two different messiahs that would come, that there would be a messiah who was a king, but there would also be a messiah who was a prophet. And maybe that's what the disciples are doing here. They're saying, well, the Son of Man, some say He's the prophet Messiah. They've been speaking of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But no one mentions that the Son of Man is the Son of David. Where the Messiah is the Son of David. But nonetheless, the people are confused. The people don't understand who the Messiah is supposed to be, and that's the point of this right now, is that the people don't get the Messiah. They don't understand the work of the Messiah yet. The Christ is the one who will save the world from their sins. But the people don't understand that. They still see the Messiah as this trailblazing prophet, or this king who will destroy the Gentiles. They don't recognize the reality of who the Messiah is. But in giving this answer, he then looks at them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter looks at him, and he replies and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He gets it. He gets that Jesus is the Christ, but I don't think he understands what that really means at the end of the day. But he recognizes that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is Jesus himself. He has been here with Jesus for a couple of years at this point, I think. And he's grasped it. He's seen Jesus in His greatest prophetic moments. Him preaching from the mountaintop. He's also seen Him perform amazing miracles. The moment where Peter finally chose to follow Him. The moment when Jesus finally called Him out of His daily routine of work catching fish. Jesus performed a grand miracle that they caught so many fish that they had to have help dragging the net back to shore. Peter understands who Jesus is in this moment. He understands a facet of the great and glorious one that he has been following. And Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus points to Peter to the reality that this isn't something you could logic out yourself. This isn't something you could reason yourself into. This is something that the Father has impressed upon you. Unless we think it's some type of super duper special revelatory moment here, maybe it was. But Simon Kistemacher, one of the commentaries, commentators that I follow, he commented that it's like this is the ordinary means of grace happening here. The Father is bringing together everything that Peter has been witnessing, that the disciples have been witnessing, the teachings of Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, his healings. Everything that Jesus has been doing finally clicks together. For Peter in this moment, and the Father, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has made it suddenly come together in Peter's heart and mind, and he sees all the clues fall into place. And that's why he cries out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not some lightning bolt out of heaven that suddenly makes Peter see it. It's the quiet work of the Holy Spirit there within Peter's own mind and heart, finally bringing the pieces together for him. And so in that moment, he confesses who Jesus is. And Jesus responds with that, Your name is Peter now. You'll be known as Peter. He's been called Peter throughout this book. The first time Jesus encountered him, he called him Peter. There in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus, Jesus said, You're going to be called Peter now. But here, Jesus seals the deal. He brings us to his final moment and says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We heard about a rock in one of our readings today. There in Isaiah 50, 51, in verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Here, Peter becomes the rock of a new people. Just as Abraham was the rock of Israel, he was the one from whom all of Israel sprang forth because of his faith in Yahweh's promises. He became a rock because he was who God chose to make the father of many nations, to make the father who would bring blessings upon this world through his offspring. But it's not merely because he's the physical father of Isaac, the physical father of Jacob and the patriarchs. But it's because he has faith. He trusts in this God who is at work to bring about these promises. And likewise, Peter here becomes a rock there alongside the other disciples to be the one upon whom God is going to build his church through their faithfulness, through their witness, through all that they will go forward and do. After this moment, in confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are the rock, and I will build my church. But Jesus goes on to say many other things about what he's going to do. Not only is it that Peter is the rock because of his faith in God's promises, but the church that he is going to build will overcome the work of the devil it will overcome the work of death itself. And so we have those who confess alongside Peter who overcome the work of death and the devil. Jesus continues there in verse 18 and he says, "I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And so you have Peter in his confession becoming the rock. And then he's going to build his church out of their faithful witness, out of his faithful witness the church will be built and this church will not be prevailed upon by the gates of hell the work of the death the work of death and the devil are going to be undone one of the things i was been thinking about this week is this reference to the gates of hell there in the greek the word behind that word hell is the word hades and if you go back into the greek translation of the old testament hades is always used for the word sheol which is the Hebrew word for death. And so, Sheol, as we understand it, is death. And in Greek, it was always translated as Hades. So therefore, those who would hear this in the Greek would hear the word death in their ears, that the gates of death shall not prevail. Now, hell and death are very similar in many ways. But I think from that Hebrew perspective of thinking about death, the place of the dead, that place where you go when you die, He's not talking about the final judgment here, the gates of the final judgment. He's talking about that which stands between us and God in this here and now, that death itself stands between us and God. In the other part, we often think of this as being like the gates are attacking the church. The gates of hell, the gates of death shall not prevail against the church. But I think we get it backwards. What are gates for? Gates are not for offense, they are for defense. Gates protect something. The gates of a city are there to keep the outside armies from invading and destroying the city. And if they don't prevail against that army, then they collapse under the weight of that army and the army is able to invade and conquer and go forth in victory. And I think that's a better picture that we should put into our minds that when it says the gates of hell shall not prevail, the gates of death shall not prevail against the church, That is, the church is assaulting death itself. The church is going up against the de- against death and the devil. And the gates of death cannot prevail. They cannot overcome. They cannot stand against the weight and the power of the church that is dependent upon this Christ. This one who has died and been raised back to life. The gates will collapse under the assault of the church as the church goes forth with the confession of Peter goes forth being built upon that rock of who Peter is in his confession. It will go forth and overcome the gates of death. It will bring life because of who Jesus the Messiah is. He is the one who died. He is the one who has been risen back to life. The one who is truly God and yet truly man who's dealt with the sin of the world. He and His work empowers the church to move forward. Sin is defeated in Christ, and so therefore death itself is defeated. It can't stand against the promises of God, and so these gates of hell, these gates of death cannot stand against it. They cannot stand against the church. It cannot prevail. It cannot push back against the truth of God that is found in the church. And the truth that knocks down these gates is that the Messiah has died for sin. He's died for that which separates us from God. He has died for that which brings death to us. He has died for that which empowers death itself. The gates of death cannot resist that power of life that Christ has now poured out through His resurrection. He defeats the gates of death for us so that we can then go and push them down, that we can knock them down, so that we as the church can move forward and make known the joy of salvation. The power of the church is Christ's power over victory. His power over death. We find our power in that victory of Jesus. And so the gates of death cannot prevail against us, the church. We will push down those gates. And we will make known the joy of salvation in Christ Himself. We will destroy those gates and move forward. But how do we destroy those gates? How do we push down those gates ultimately? It is through the death and life of Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what does that bring to us? How does that empower us? What does it change in us? And so lastly, we have those who bring others to forgiveness in Christ. You see, Peter becomes the rock upon which the church is built that the gates of hell cannot stand against. But then he says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's all kinds of ideas about what these keys are exactly. But at the core of it is it is absolutely the keys to the kingdom of heaven that something is being given to Peter and also, I believe, to the other apostles that will open up the gates of heaven so that the church can enter in with power and with authority. And that those keys are forgiveness. They will go forth proclaiming the forgiveness of Christ after His death and resurrection. They will speak of Him as the Messiah who has dealt with sin, who has put sin to death. And put death itself to death so that its gates can be kicked over by the church. We receive forgiveness of sins because Peter and the apostles bore those keys. They bore the keys of forgiveness, that profession of faith, that confession that Jesus has died for the sins of the world. And this goes over to John chapter 20 on the night of Jesus' resurrection, after He had been raised from the dead, He meets His disciples and He breathes on them and says that I give you the authority to forgive sins. Whosoever sins you forgive, they shall be forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they shall be retained. That is the key, that ability to proclaim that forgiveness to those who repent, to those who need to hear that God is for them. We so often hear that Christ died for the sins of the world in our liturgy. And guess what? That means that He died for your sins too. That your sins, regardless of what that sin is, regardless of how you have broken the Ten Commandments, regardless of how you have ignored God's law, that is forgiven in Jesus Christ. He takes that sin upon Himself at the cross and has already taken it upon Himself that you can hear that you are forgiven. That you can be brought to faith through that word of forgiveness. That you can be brought to repentance. That you can be brought to a turning point. Just as Peter is at a hinge moment right here. And the Gospels are at a hinge right here. The disciples are at a hinge in this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That every time we hear the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, the keys are being used to open up the gates of heaven to welcome sinners into that place. And we are placed at a hinge moment when we hear that we are forgiven. Will we receive that forgiveness over and over and over because we need it over and over and over? Will we turn from our sins and cry out, yes, I am a sinner in need of those keys to open up that lock. I need those gates opened for me, O Lord. And the forgiveness you have earned for us that is pronounced upon me is the key to open up that for me. St. Peter and the apostles have that key because they have confessed who Jesus truly is. And so they are called to make that known at the right time. You see, Jesus here at the very end of this Gospel, He says, then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one here in verse 20. Tell no one that He was the Christ. And this goes back to the very beginning. The crowds did not understand the Messiah. They didn't know what the Messiah was here to do. They thought He was going to be a great prophet who would preach... And raise people up to go to battle against Rome, or that he would be the king who would lead people in battle against the Gentile world, who would conquer that Gentile world for the sake of God's people. But the Messiah isn't here to conquer people physically, he is here to conquer people's hearts and minds. He is the king who comes to renew those hearts and minds, to turn them from sin by forgiving that sin by dying upon the cross for us, by being raised back to new life. The crowds cannot hear that just yet until Christ has died and been raised back to life. They can't hear that He is the Messiah or they will take it the wrong way in this moment. So He tells the disciples to not speak this word of Him being the Messiah just yet. Let Him accomplish His work first and then they will be free to go out and proclaim that He is the Messiah who forgives our sins. And that the gates of the kingdom are thrown open. That the church might trample over the gates of death to get to the gates of life. That the gates of death can no longer hold us back. Because forgiveness is ours in Christ. And as forgiveness comes to us, we become those who proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. We become like Peter. We become rocks for other people to to build upon. We become those who hold on to the keys. We become part of that church that will overcome death and continues to overcome death. And then gloriously, like Peter, we receive a piece of that key because we can proclaim forgiveness to those who need to hear it. We can tell people about Jesus. And when we tell people about Jesus, we are opening the kingdom of heaven to them. When we speak that word of forgiveness that is in Jesus to another sinner who needs to hear it, we are opening the kingdom up We are making those gates open up for them to come in. And it's a glorious task that the Lord has given to us to receive forgiveness of sins and to then become bearers of forgiveness to others. That we get to be like Simon Barjona and become Peters for others. We become those who bring forth the good news of Jesus, who go forth confessing He is the Messiah, the Son of God. We go forth crying out, That He is the one who has overcome death. Who has overcome the devil. That Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. And we make it known like Peter did. We make it known because we have been called to do that. Through all parts of our lives we are called to receive the grace of God. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit in us and to go forth rejoicing in the forgiveness of our sins. And in our rejoicing making it known like Peter will do. And so we become those who will confess with Peter who Jesus is. We will become those who overcome death and the devil by being part of the church and kicking down those gates for the sake of others. And we bring others through those gates by proclaiming that word of forgiveness to them, that the gates of heaven would be flung open for them and for us to all enter. And there we will sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior and worship Him when He returns and brings about the new creation, stripping sin out of this world and stripping sin out of us, that we would be made fully whole finally. That we will be redeemed to the uttermost because we have been those who confess with Jesus, who confess with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the one who brings forgiveness of sins to all those who receive Him. In the name of the Father and the Son,